0: Section seven of the Outline of Science, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emmy Graymore. The Outline of Science by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter three Natural History four Botany Part three. Plant tropisms. There is a close correspondence between plant responses and the tropisms exhibited by animals and the plant's answer back to gravity is called geotropism. But while the moth which flies into the candle flame perceives the stimulus of light by special sense organs, the eyes, and moves by special motor organs, the contractile muscles, and has these linked by special conducting organs, the nerves, the root has at its disposal no such complex and highly specialized structures. Perception and conduction take place in the general living matter, Reaction is due to a slight change in the growth rates of upper and lower sides. Darwin's comparison of the root tip to a brain is really far-fetched. Ingenious attempts have been made to show that the plant has sensory organs of a primitive kind, for the perception of gravity, light, and touch. In a group of cells within the root tip, there are numerous large starch grains, which lie heaped up on the bottom wall. If the root is laid on its side, the starch grains fall over and come to lie on the sidewall, which is now lowermost. It is suggested that the root is in equilibrium only when these starch grains rest on the true bottom wall, that if they lie on a sidewall the difference is perceived and the root curves till the tip points downwards, the grains resume their proper position, and equilibrium is restored. It is certain that some crustaceans maintain their balance by a similar apparatus of grains of sand resting in the cavity of the ear. In the case of the root, the experimental investigation is beset with difficulties. But though the theory cannot be regarded as definitely established, it possesses considerable probability, and it may be that in these special cells we have the nearest approach that the plant shows to a sense organ. Why does the root curve down and the stem shoot up? To that question we can as yet give no answer. We can only say that it is their nature so to do. Many botanists expect, however, that as our knowledge of the varying structure and composition of living matter grows more precise, we shall be able to interpret the matter in terms of physics and chemistry. The theories which have been formed so far are unsubstantiated. The imagination of the scientist occasionally outruns his facts. Tendrils the stem of the plant supports the leaves in the light, but in many plants a weak stem bears the weight of the leaves by twining round some stronger neighbour. The twining movement is of immense importance to plants like our honeysuckle, hop, and bindweed, which are thus much superior to the bramble rambling over a stone wall secured only by its spines, or the goose-grass rambling over the bramble secured only by its hooks. In the great forests of the tropics, a great proportion of the vegetation consists of such types. The lians, twining round trees, twining round each other, forming an impenetrable confusion of coiled and twisted cordage, reaching out to the light above the forest roof, supported on the dead pillars of the trees they have strangled. Robert Louis Stevenson gives a graphic picture of the form of the struggle for existence in his poem of The Woodman the twining movement like the movement of the root tip is regulated by gravity tendril bearers respond to another influence that of contact with a solid body like the tip of the hop the whip-like tendril of the bryony sweeps round in a circle this movement is not directed by external stimulus but is purely automatic but if the tendril touches a twig a wire a leaf or another tendril it is stimulated by the contact to more rapid growth on the side away from the exciting object and so curves towards it. As it goes on curving, fresh portions come into contact and are stimulated, so that the whole tip becomes tightly wrapped round the support. Later the basal part twists into a corkscrew spring, once or twice reversed, and then becomes thick and woody. This spring breaks the force of the tug of a passing animal, or of a great gust of wind, and saves the plant from being torn from its support. In his Climbing Plants, Dowern describes the conspicuous success of the Bryony in riding the storm which battered many other plants. The tendrilled plant is more highly adapted for climbing than the twiner. The latter loses a third of its length in its coils, and while it can use only such supports as are nearly vertical, the tendril encircles anything that is solid and not too thick. The tendril represents some part of the plant turned to a new use. In the sweet pea it takes the place of the apical leaflets, in some vetchlings, it represents the entire leaf, in some tropical orchids it is a root, in the briny and in the vines it is a branch. If we gently stroke the underside of the bryony tendril, we can readily observe the answer back. After a few minutes the tendril curves towards the side touched. Only a solid body can induce the response, a stream of water, a violent rain shower, even rubbing with a stick of semi-solid gelatin has no effect. Here is a fine example of delicate adjustment, for response to raindrops would be of no use to the plant, would even deprive it of opportunities of clasping proper supports. The tendril responds only to the touch that helps it. It is to the same stimulus that the sundew tentacles react when they fold on a struggling fly, though the movement is intensified by the insect's chemical action. Light and other influences the seedling, fresh from the protection of the seed-coats, young and delicate, is at once affected by all the influences of the world into which it has come. Gravity is not the only directive agency. The root grows against some shard, is slightly wounded, and turns away from the source of injury. It rubs gently against grains of soil, and the contact causes it to move gently to and fro. It feels its way through the crevices of the soil. It comes to a dry region and bends to the moisture side but the shoot, subject to all these stimuli in the soil, finds yet another director in light when it reaches the air. Everyone knows the window plant. With the shoots bent to the light, the leaves twisted round and spread flat to catch the rays, light interferes with the action of gravity on the stem and is the primary cause of leaf movements. Its action is complicated by the fact that, unlike gravity, it is constantly changing its intensity and direction. Few plants can react so quickly as to follow the sun. Moreover, as growth ceases, the power of movement ceases, except in the case of those leaves which have jointed stalks. So it comes about that most leaves, as they mature, adopt a fixed position in relation to light. THE SENSITIVE PLANTS The sensitive plant is a vigorous shrub, usually reaching a height of some feet, in our hothouses. Each graceful leaf has a stalk jointed to the stem from the tip of which spring four secondary stalks, each with a double row of leaflets. The foliage stands out from the stem, the leaflets are expanded. If the plant is gently shaken, instantly the leaf stalks droop, the secondary stalks fall together, the leaflets fold up. The whole scaffolding of green light screens has collapsed. In nature a wandering animal or a shower of rain brings about the same result. A series of movements so rapid that the reaction is complete in a few seconds. Soon a reverse sets in, and a quarter of an hour later the plant is in its normal condition again. A violent shock is not necessary. Touch the lower half of the joint of the leaf-stalk and it droops. A little later the secondary stalks come together. Then the leaflets fold up in succeeding pairs, singe the apical leaflet, and the chain of reactions is reversed. Make a cut in the stem, and first the nearest leaf reacts, then the next, then one further away. The shock stimulus is passed on. It is conducted at the rate of an inch in the second. This is a thousand times slower than the conduction along an animal's nerve, but a hundred times as quick as the rate commonly developed in plants. The movement itself is slow compared with the wink of an eyelid, but very fast in comparison with that of an inverted root bending downwards. The movement is different from that of a curving root or stem. It depends on a sudden diminution of pressure in the cells of the lower half of the joint, which thus loses its rigidity and collapses. This allows of a very rapid fall. It also allows of the occurrence of the movement long after growth has ceased. Of what use to the plant is this spectacular reaction? It has been suggested that the rapid closing shakes off small insects feeding on the leaves. It has been suggested that the plant thus avoids damage by violent rain or hail. It has been suggested that browsing animals are frightened by the sudden change in the appearance of the pasture, and repelled by the thorny appearance of the closed plant. It cannot be said that these explanations are convincing. They do not apply at all to a dozen other plants which show similar but less active leaf movements. The only animal that shows a distaste for the sensitive plant is the goat which is not a native of the plant's original home in South America. We know, too, that the repeated movement is actually harmful. A plant which had been stimulated twelve times daily for three weeks attained to only one-third of the height of another left undisturbed. It was handicapped in assimilating power, but probably, in addition, the constant irritation upset its constitution in some profound way. Is it better to take the chance of being eaten, or the certainty of being stunted?" The reaction to shock brings with it clear advantages in other cases. The leaf of the venous fly-trap folds quickly together on the slightest touch of one of its sensitive hairs. In nature the touch is that of an injudicious insect which is subsequently crushed, drowned, and digested. The little filaments or stalks of the stamens of the cornflowers contract instantly by 30% when touched. The result is that the anthers from which the pollen has been shed are pulled down over the brush of the stigma, and the pollen is swept out and exposed to visiting insects which carry it to other flowers. The bilobed stigma of the musk closes on the pollen. In this case, and in others like it, the movement has an obvious biological advantage. Do plants sleep? As night falls, the trefoil leaves of the clover fold their leaflets up. The daisy flower closes. The tulip becomes once more a bud. The leaflets of the wood sorrel droop and close. The plants sleep. The term sleep, consecrated by long usage, is not a happy one, for with the sleep of animals this movement has nothing to do. It brings no recovery from a non-existent fatigue. It is in reality an active movement, not a collapse. Only in the seeming relaxation, recurring as darkness comes on, is there a superficial resemblance to the real relaxation of the animal and to the drooping of its drowsy lids. The tulip flower, like that of the crocus, closes as the air cools and reopens in the sun's warmth. By alternately raising and lowering the temperature, it may be made to open and close several times in one day. The daisy and the marigold open in the light and close in the dark. The night stalk opens in the dark and closes in the light. The marigold, too, may be made to open and close as many as three times in twenty-four hours. It may be made to open at night and close through the day by suitable changes in illumination. But its case is not so simple as that of the tulip, for when kept in continuous dark, it opens and closes day and night. Even a flower which has opened for the first time in the dark and has been kept thereafter in continuous dark, which has never experienced the daily change, carries out the periodic movement regularly. In the case of leaves, the movement is induced by the change from light to dark. BUT IN LEAVES, TOO, IT MAY TAKE PLACE IN CONTINUOUS LIGHT OR CONTINUOUS DARK. A SCARLET RUNNER MAY BE RAISED FROM SEED AND DARKNESS, AND IN an EVEN TEMPERATURE, AND UNDER THESE CONDITIONS THE LEAVES RISE AND FALL DAY AND NIGHT. IN SUCH CASES THERE IS EVIDENTLY A PERIODIC MOVEMENT INDEPENDENT OF EXTERNAL CHANGES IN ILLUMINATION AND TEMPERATURE, THOUGH THESE CHANGES CERTAINLY STRENGTHEN AND EMPHASIZE THE NORMAL DAILY SWING. IN SOME CASES THE PERIODIC MOVEMENT MAY BE DUE TO AN AFTER-EFFECT OF THE INDUCED MOVEMENT. BUT IN THE SCARLET RUNNER RAISED FROM SEED, AND THE MARIGOLD BROUGHT TO FLOWER IN CONTINUOUS DARK, THIS CANNOT BE SO. IT IS LIKELY THAT THE EFFECTIVE INFLUENCE IS SOME CHANGE IN THE ELECTRICAL CONDITION OF THE ATMOSPHERE. BUT THE POSSIBILITY OF AN INHERITED periodicity MUST BE CONSIDERED. THE SIGNIFICANCE OF THESE SLEEP MOVEMENTS IS STILL A MATTER OF DISCUSSION. Darwin tried to show that they benefited the plant by saving it from excessive radiation and cooling on clear, cold nights. Other investigators see a use in the avoidance of the deposit of dew. Flowers may save their pollen from being spoiled by rain by closing in dull weather. HOW PLANTS PROTECT THEMSELVES Even this short survey shows that the power of limited movement in plants is widespread. The tropisms are specially important for with their aid the plant arranges its organs so as to make the best of its environment. The ultimate position of leaf, stem, and root is the result of balanced reactions to all the influences that play on the plant throughout its growth. But the power of movement is nearly always restricted and gentle, confined to arranging the members of a stationary organism. Active locomotion belongs to the animal kingdom. Perhaps the nearest approach is in the telegraph plant. Desmodium gyrans, from the plains of the Ganges, in which there are continuous movements of the leaflets in little orbits, but no one knows why this plant should be so busy. We have said that plants live their lives very much as animals live theirs. Like animals, they have to protect themselves against natural enemies. Many animals live exclusively on a vegetable diet. As there are plants that strongly object to being eaten, they take effective measures to protect themselves. If they did not, the herbivorous animal itself would suffer for its means of subsistence would in time disappear from the face of the earth. One means of defense employed by the plant is poisons and corrosive fluids, which it uses to good effect. But sometimes what is one animal's food is another's poison. For instance, the leaves of the deadly nightshade form the most important food of a small beetle, but the foliage is poison to the larger grazing animals. It is not clear to us how grazing animals discriminate between what is harmful to them and what is not harmful. Many plants have characteristic odors offensive to us. Others are odorless to the olfactory nerves of man, but they may make themselves known to the animal sense of smell. Wild animals probably recognize the dangerous plant by color, smell, or taste. The leaves of nettles, etc., have stinging hairs or bristles as protection against the attacks of large or herbivorous animals. The stinging hair plays an important part as it penetrates the skin and injects into the wound a poison, which causes the painful burning sensation. And the cactus-like plants, that variety of weapons, is considerable. A single species often bears three or four kinds of weapons. They are armed with large spines and small bristles, short, thick, and thin, naughty and smooth, straight-pointed and barbed, and so by thorns, spines, and prickles, plants often protect themselves. The nectar of some flowers intoxicates the bees, who are believed to acquire a taste for it. In his Botany of Today, Professor Scott Elliot describes a well-known orchid, which has a hinged lip. When the unsuspecting insect enters the flower and passes over the lip, it is suddenly jerked forward and thrown into a sort of bath of liquid. As it painfully crawls out, with wetted wings, it has to carry away the pollen masses, and so effect pollination. There is no cruelty in this, for the insect is supposed to visit another flower, and cannot be much harmed. How plants are reproduced. In that great burst of activity in spring, which heralds the approach of warmer weather, plants make an irresistible appeal to the eye. We welcome the clear colors of the snowdrop, celandine and violet, and still more the bursting bud and shooting blade covering the earth with a hundred delicate shades of green. The tree unfolds its leaves, and rootstock and bulb push up new shoots through the soil. Such plants wake from their annual rest and embark again on an active period. Among them arise myriads of seedlings, new plants growing from germinating seeds. In these we see a complete new start, the production of new individuals, the result of reproductive processes completed months before in the previous summer and autumn. The meaning of the flower: the seed, the kernel in the nut, the pip in the apple, comes from the fruit, and the fruit is the end of the flower. So it is the flower that is concerned with the reproduction of the higher plants. What is a flower? If we examine a buttercup or a lesser celandine, we find to the outside a number, five or more, of green scales, the sepals, together forming the calyx, which in the bud protect the delicate internal parts, and afterwards steady the full-blown flowers. Then comes the corolla, of bright yellow petals. Inside the corolla are numerous stamens, each with a stalk or filament bearing a head, the anther, which contains the pollen. In the centre are many small green grains, the carpels, in each of which is an ovule or possible seed, containing an egg cell. The shape, colour, number, and arrangement of these parts vary greatly from flower to flower, and on the floral characters the classification of flowering plants is largely based. In many flowers some of the parts are wanting, or are greatly altered in appearance. In the tulip the calyx, like the corolla, is bright-coloured. In the carpels, three in number, are united to form an ovary containing many ovules. This union of the carpels occurs too in the poppy, foxglove, and many others. In the grasses the calyx and corolla are absent, or represented by minute scales. The work of protection is taken over by small green leaves, which correspond to the three leaves which stand out below the flower of the anemone. In the hazel there are flowers with stamens only, gathered in golden drooping catkins, and flowers with an ovary only, grouped in buds, each crowned with a tuft of crimson filaments. In the willow the two kinds of flower grow on separate bushes. THE SECRET OF THE SEED Before the ovule can develop into a seed, the egg cell it contains must be fertilized by the pollen. The pollen is received on the stigma, a most receptive surface, sometimes borne on a long style, as in the sage, sometimes sessile, on the ovary, as in the tulip. The pollen grain germinates, and sends a fine tube down through the tissue of the style and ovary to the ovule. The process of fertilization is preceded by a long process of intricate preparation. In the ovule there has been formed a single large cell, the embryo sac, containing a number of cells, of which two are important. Of these one is the egg cell or female reproductive body. The germinating pollen grain contains three nuclei, one of which is the male reproductive body or sperm. When the pollen tube reaches the ovule, it brings its contents to the embryo sac, and the sperm and the egg cell fuse together. In each of these, there is packed away the inheritance of one parent. The result of the fusion, the fertilized egg cell contains all the factors which, as development proceeds, will stamp the new organism with the features of its kind. The egg cell, stimulated by fertilization, commences to divide and grows into an embryo with a root, two leaves, and a shoot bud. These parts can be easily seen if we open up a soaked pea or bean. Development goes so far, and then stops. The young tissues dry up as the seed ripens. It is cast loose in a state of rest. The higher plants, like the highest animals, liberate young ones. They are truly viviparous. End of section 7